0: Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Behind the Knife would like to sincerely thank Medtronic for sponsoring the entire 2023 Absight podcast series. Medtronic has a rich history of supporting surgical education, and we couldn't be happier they chose to partner with Behind the Knife. Their sponsorship goes a long way in supporting us as we develop exciting new content. As surgeons, we know and love Medtronic for their trusted brands like the Signia, Tri-Staple Smart Stapling Platform, and Ligature Vessel Sealer. But Medtronic's impact extends well beyond the operating room. Medtronic's mission is to engineer the extraordinary. And with 90,000 plus people in over 150 countries, Medtronic is committed to accelerating access to healthcare technology, advancing inclusion, diversity, and equity, and protecting our planet. Learn more at Medtronic.com. All right, welcome back, it's AbSite 2023. As always, Behind the Knife is ready to help you dominate the exam with our 30 episode AbSite Review series and our AbSite Review book. We also wanna share with you what's up next for Behind the Knife. 2023 is going to be a banner year. We are investing big time in our platform and we are currently working on a brand new website and accompanying iOS and Android apps. The website and apps will include tons of useful features and will make it easier to access all of the exciting new content we are making. Speaking of content, we are expanding our oral board review resources with a general surgery oral board review book and oral board audio review courses for vascular surgery, colorectal surgery, and surgical oncology. We are also almost finished with an incredible new trauma video surgical atlas. This will include 24 beautifully shot and edited trauma video scenarios, many of which have never been captured on video before. For students, we are creating a comprehensive resource designed to help them dominate their surgery rotation. This is no small project and includes written content, original illustrations, audio, and video. We've also created our very own suture kit and knot board with high quality instructional videos for right and left-handed learners. Finally, we are well underway with a full makeover of the absite Review Series and book, both of which will be ready before the 2024 test. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and please, leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you want to learn more, visit BehindTheKnife.org. Now, take a deep breath. You've got this.
1: All right, so today, let's just hop right into it. Thyroid, once again, some, starting off with some high-yield anatomy. So, woo. What is the embryologic origin of the thyroid? For
2: some reason, that is important for test-taking. Absolutely. So, endodermal cells from the foramen cecum descend into the neck and develop into this bilobe solid organ. Uh, The thing to note about this is as the descent happens, a pyramidal lobe could still persist as the distal remnant end. Also note that the thyroglossal duct cyst occurs secondary to retained tissue along the path of the descending thyroid tissue. Also, C-cells within the thyroid arise from the fourth pharyngeal pouch and are of neural crest origin. Yeah, that's one of those tricky things. They'll ask you what the origin
1: of it. You got to make sure that whether they're asking about the actual thyroid tissue or they're asking about the C-cells within the thyroid because they have different embryologic origins. Again, uh, thyroid tissue, foramen cecum is the origin, endodermal cells. C-cells from the fourth pharyngeal pouch, pouch, not arch, fourth pharyngeal pouch, and they're of neural, neural crest origin. Uh, Kevin, tell, me, tell us a little bit about the blood supply to the thyroid.
3: Right. So the blood supply is uh, primarily from the superior inferior thyroid arteries. That's easy enough. But the superior thyroid artery is the first branch off the external carotid artery. And this runs adjacent to the superior laryngeal nerve. And this becomes important later um, in our discussion here. But the inferior thyroid artery... Uh, is a branch of the thyrocervical trunk, so these, the superior and inferior are coming from completely different blood supplies, and the th- thyrocervical trunk obviously is a branch off the subclavian, um, and then the recurrent laryngeal nerve usually runs adjacent to the inferior uh, thyroid artery. The nerve passes either anterior or posterior to it. Um, so the recurrent laryngeal is associated with the inferior thyroid artery. The superior thyroid artery uh, is associated with the superior laryngeal nerve. Um, and then the important thing that's frequently tested is the inferior thyroid artery supplies both the blood supply to both the inferior and superior parathyroid glands.
1: Yeah. So there's a lot of, a lot of information in there. So there are a lot of testable information. So, uh, you know, the, the clinical, you know, importance of the associations between those arteries and nerves is, is what could get injured while you're doing, um, a thyroidectomy. Uh, why it's important to ligate the vessels close to the thyroid so that you don't injure the, um, recurrent laryngeal nerve as it passes 50% of the time passes anterior, 50% of the time passes posterior to the inferior thyroid artery. Or the superior laryngeal nerve and its association with the superior thyroid artery. So, all very, very important. Uh, what about uh, another thing? Another artery you have to be careful of not to, to injure because you can get some blood to cross called the uh, thyroid
3: I- ima. What is that? Uh, that that dr- rises directly off the innominate and is present in five percent of people. Uh, how about venous drainage? Because that's that's
1: also testable and uh, a little uh, different.
3: Yeah, I've definitely missed this a time or two. So uh, the superior and middle thyroid veins, so there's superior, middle, and inferior thyroid veins, so the superior and middle one drain into the internal jugular vein. The inferior thyroid vein drains into the nominate or brachiocephalic veins. Great. Uh, so let's get into a little bit of... Uh, uh, pathophysiology, so um,
1: benign thyroid disease. So um, what's the most common would be uh, hyperthyroidism and hyperthyroidism. Uh, and and uh, what, how do you treat that?
2: What are some different treatments? So for hyperthyroidism, you want to think medical therapy. Uh, there are two options generally, PTU and methimazole. Uh, both inhibit peroxidases. And you have to note that the side effects include aplastic anemia and agranulocytosis. Recall that PTU can be used with pregnancy, so think of this as the two Ps, PTU and pregnancy, whereas methimazole crosses the placenta and and causes cretinism.
1: Okay. Uh, What about Graves' disease? Uh, Kevin, tell us a little bit about that.
3: Yeah, so this is an autoimmune disease uh, caused by an antibody to the TSH receptor, um, and this results in uh, hyperthyroidism. So on scintigraphy, you'll have diffuse uptake of the entire thyroid gland. Uh, generally, you're able to treat this just with medical management uh, with PTU or methimazole. And then uh, you can also use radioactive ablation. But in, there's a few cases of Graves' disease. If it doesn't respond to medical management or to uh, radioactive ablation, that it could need a thyroidectomy. Yeah, so mainly medical treatment with Graves' disease. Um, You
1: can think about radioactive ablation, although it can exacerbate some of the ocular symptoms that you have with Graves' disease. Um, Every once in a while, these people will uh, need a thyroidectomy. And what's important to
3: to think about preoperatively for people with Graves' disease if you're doing a thyroidectomy? So you want to make sure they're euthyroid, so um, beta-blocked and given Lugol solution uh, 10 to 14 days prior to surgery.
1: Right. That's a that's a question they may ask, is if you're preparing somebody for, you know, um, a, a surgery, what you need to do. Uh, that
3: thyroid storm.
1: Yeah, exactly. Let's move on from Graves' disease to, um, you know, another commonly tested uh, disease process, which is the toxic multinodular goiter. Uh, Wu, can
2: you tell us about that? So here you want to think uh, about Prolonged low grade TSH stimulation is usually the cause of toxic multinodular goiter. Um, bear in mind that radioactive iodine is less effective for this than for Graves' disease. And so the treatment is generally total or subtotal uh, thyroidectomy. One thing to
3: keep in mind when you have uh, a nodule, uh, one of the first things you always do is you check a TSH. And if a TSH is normal, you know, you proceed with an FNA but if the tsh is low you're going to start thinking about some sort of uh hyperthyroid pathology great uh so kevin a
1: couple different types of uh inflammation of the thyroid thyroiditis uh what are those and what are the causes
3: uh so hashimoto's uh, i feel like i see this on a lot of patients uh medical records um uh, it's the chronic lymphocytic thyroiditis so they are hypothyroid with an enlarged painless thyroid. Um, this is caused by, again, antithyroid antibodies. Well, this is antithyroid antibodies. The other ones were antibodies to TSH for Graves' disease. Um, and then you just treat this with thyroid replacement. And what about um, uh, another type of thyroid,
1: thyroiditis? Yeah, there's this
3: subacute uh, granulomatosis which is dequervians, and this is from a viral ideology. But generally what you'll see with this is an elevated ESR um, and then decreased radioiodine uptake. You treat this with pain control, beta blockers, and potentially steroids.
1: Yeah so uh, a lot of times you'll see the um, the distinction here being painful versus painless so you know the painless uh, thyroiditis being uh, the Hashimoto's the chronic lymphocytic thyroiditis the painful being the subacute or the acute uh, granulomatous the the, the Quervain's um just uh, just be aware that there's different etiologies and some different treatments for those Uh so now getting now that we've kind of covered the boring, benign medical side of things, um, let's get into something a little bit more interesting, a little bit more clinically relevant, which is the palpable thyroid nodule, which is a very common presentation. So uh, Wu, you know, what's your approach to these patients? Like, How do you want to start with them? What kind of questions do you want to ask them? What's important to know about the the
2: nodule or their history? Absolutely. So let's first bear in mind that only 5% of palpable nodules turn out to be malignant. Uh, so, going systematically, starting with the history, uh, you want to ask about history of radiation or family history of thyroid slash endocrine malignancies or the risk factors of those malignancies. Uh, that's
1: really, yeah, that's really the key when you're thinking about the, the the medical history of these patients. Do they have any radiation exposure? Because that greatly increases the risk of a palpable nodule, you know, being malignant. Um, and if there's any familial um, malignancies uh, that... Uh, that uh, Run in the family. Uh, so, where, what, how do you want to start? How to work in these patients up? Where do you want to start? How do you sort them out? Yeah. So, let's
2: start with labs. Um, I'd obtain a, a TSH level uh, to start, uh, and the mainstay of, of the the workup here is the ultrasound. Uh, so, you're going to look for hypoechogenicity for microcalcifications, irregular margins unorganized vascular patterns, lymphatic invasion, all these features are concerning for malignancy. So uh, bear in mind that ultrasound is the mainstay of uh, diagnostics, and you're looking for these concerning features. Uh, You can then move on to thyroid scintigraphy, which can be useful with a suppressed TSH and thyroid nodule. It can really help you distinguish between solitary toxic adenomas and Graves' disease with concurrent cold or malignant nodules.
3: I think I actually remember a question where they actually showed me an ultrasound of a nodule and asked what the concerning features of that nodule were, and gave me a multiple choice question on that.
1: Yeah, and I think that's that's a that's an important point that you know there's a lot of imaging, a lot more imaging uh, type questions being shown on the website and the boards. Um, And it is, you know, especially with the kind of broadened use of ultrasound where, you know, as a general surgeon, you're expected to have uh, some pretty advanced ultrasound um, uh, capabilities uh, in your clinical practice. So that would not surprise me at all if they just show you an image and you have to not only know the buzzwords of hypoechoic, microcalcifications, irregular margins, you have to be able to recognize it. So
2: So, so spend some time looking at that. So uh, once you do the ultrasound, the next step is going to be to figure out whether you need to biopsy this nodule or not. And so the cutoff generally is considered to be greater than 10 millimeters. So you're looking for any solid hypoechoic nodule greater than 10 millimeters, and that should undergo biopsy. Uh, once you have a biopsy, you can really have uh, any number of options that come out at you as far as the result goes. Uh, so again, you get that biopsy, which is an FNA, and we'll talk about all the potential uh, results of those biopsies and what to do with those results.
1: Yep. we're going to talk about them right now. So Kevin, uh, you know, there's, uh, first off, this is what this is called some kind of criteria, right? Like when you get a, when you, when you biopsy the thyroid, um, and you get one of these six different possibilities, it's the,
3: I believe that's the Bethesda criteria.
1: Right. So, uh, Kevin, what's the Bethesda criteria? And you you do need to know these. So there's six possibilities and you need to know what to do with each one because they will ask you.
3: Yep. Uh, and so, uh, the first is, you know, benign. And so one thing to keep in mind with any biopsy that you're doing, if it's discordant with your imaging, so you have a very suspicious nodule and it comes back benign, um, then you should probably repeat the biopsy. If you have a relatively benign appearing nodule and you get a benign result back, then you can feel safe with that and reexamine the patient in six to 12 months with another ultrasound. Um, If it's non-diagnostic, you should repeat the FNA. These are generally when I do FNAs, that's what comes back uh, just blood. Um, And then follicular cells of undetermined significance. As much as you want to tell your staff, we should just go do a lobectomy. Uh, This is not quite there yet. So you need to repeat the FNA if it's follicular cells of undetermined significance, if you get the follicular neoplasm common question uh, on an FNA, that's when you do the lobectomy because you can't determine uh, malignancy of a follicular neoplasm based on FNA, so you need the actual uh, tissue um, in to determine if it's invading. And we'll talk more about follicular cell neoplasms in a minute. Uh, and then if it's suspicious for malignancy, this is when you either want to do a lobectomy um, and then, uh, during that lobectomy, you would do a frozen section on it, um, to determine if you need to complete a total thyroidectomy. Well, quick caveat, you can consider, for, I haven't seen a lot of
1: people doing frozen sections and the hadn't maybe a head and neck surgeons out there can, or endocrine surgeons can correct me, but I haven't seen a whole lot of frozen sections. Um, a, a lot of times, um, again, if it's a low suspicion, do a lobectomy, send it for final pathology, um, and then come back, uh, and do the completion thyroidectomy. If, you think you're dealing with something like you know anaplastic or something that's going to be obvious on a frozen section you can consider doing a frozen section that way you can complete the operation in in one stage but i think for the most part uh it's going to be a lobectomy final pathology followed by completion thyroidectomy if that based on that final pathology just a little caveat there
3: and then if it's malignant, I think we said already, total thyroidectomy.
1: Again, yep. So, so the six possibilities off an FNA for, for a thyroid nodule, benign, non-diagnostic, follicular cells of undetermined significance, follicular neoplasm, suspicious for malignancy, and malignant. So, you know, obviously benign, you can repeat the exam in 6 to 12 months. If it's uh, undetermined significance or non-diagnostic, you repeat your FNA. Follicular neoplasm, as Kevin said, you can't tell the difference between benign and, and malignant with follicular cells on an FNA, so you have to do a lobectomy for diagnosis. Um, it's suspicious for malignancy, either a lobectomy or a total thyroid um, based on your level of suspicion, and then malignant, um, a, a total uh, thyroidectomy would be the treatment for that. Uh, so let's get a little bit into there's some, because there's a lot of nuances and of the different particular types of um, thyroid cancers. So papillary thyroid cancer, which is the most common, fortunately has a very good prognosis, but is the most common.
2: Uh, Woo, tell us a little bit about that. Who does it affect? Um, how does it behave? Yeah, so as far as the history goes, you want to again remember that the history of radiation to the neck is particularly important for papillary thyroid cancer. Uh, generally, it happens in women. Uh, note that it spreads to lymph nodes and rarely metastasizes The way, the silly way that I remember this is papillaries, uh, palpable lymph nodes, follicular spreads, goes far away, uh, and that's through uh, hematogenous spread. Uh, So again, papillary spreads to lymph nodes, it rarely metastasizes. The lymphatic spread does not affect prognosis, but local invasion does. Uh, it has characteristic somoma bodies and orphan antinuclei nuclei on pathology. And what's an orphan annie Because they're not going to say orphan antinuclei nuclei on, on the test. They're going to they're gonna describe it. So how, do, how would you describe that? Absolutely. So for anyone who has ever seen the little orphan annie cartoon, uh, orphan annie's eyeballs are entirely cleared out so they look white. Uh, so it's essentially just a white circle. And so what is that? So the, the, the nuclei of the cells uh,
1: look washed out, essentially, right? So that's an Orphan Annie uh, nuclei, orphan Annie, orphan Annie cell. Okay, great. I'm sure none of you have seen Orphan Annie, but just Google it. <laughs> and so what's the treatment then, Wu, for a papillary thyroid cancer?
2: So the treatment for papillary thyroid cancer is a total thyroidectomy, you can consider a hemithyroidectomy for patients that have very good prognostic factors, including a size less than 10 millimeters, age less than 45, and negative nodes. However, the safe answer is always going to be a total thyroidectomy.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, that there's you know, some
2: endocrine surgeons out, you
1: know, out there at specialized centers that, you know, if they're uh, have a, like you said, a very good prognosis based on whatever criteria you're using, the ages, the aims um, that are doing hemithyroids for these, you know, s- small, you know, papillary cancers. But on the boards, I think for myself, I would always answer a total thyroid if I'm dealing with uh, papillary cancer. Um, so this, I've actually seen this asked many times, um, over the years, but why total thyroidectomy for papillary cancer? What are the benefits?
2: So there are three things you want to consider is uh, first is the removal of potential multifocal disease, the disease that you wouldn't have seen. That's important because multifocal disease is very common with papillary cancer. So that's very important. Okay. The second is preparation for post-op radioiodine therapy because any residual thyroid tissue would have interfered with that potential therapy. Uh, and the third is, uh, is to be able to use thyroglobulin for surveillance. Again, if you have any residual thyroid tissue, the thyroglobulin levels aren't as predictive of, of recurrence. Right. So thyroglobulin is an important marker for, that you can
1: test for recurrence. I I think if I was given, and and this is, I'm not, you know, this has happened where you're given those three as answers. What, what of those would you think would be the most important? I would think that removing all the multifocal disease would be the most important. Exactly. Yeah. So if I had to choose one of those as the biggest benefit, um, I would say it's the removal of potential multifocal disease, um, as one of the benefits, most important benefits of total thyroidectomy and papillary cancer. Uh, what if you, um, you know, papillary cancer, what if you either during your ultrasound identify some positive nodes, um, the, uh, biopsy, you know, these nodes, and it comes up as papillary as thyroid tissue, or your intraoperative assessment, um, you
2: find some positive nodes, what, what then? Uh, so at this point, you're going to consider expanding your dissection. So you want to include level six in your compartmental dissection.
1: Well, you definitely want to include level six with any which is central node dissection with any positive node. But also, you need to do a selective dissection based on that compartment where the node is positive. So you do uh, removal of nodes in, in that section, and
3: always add a level six uh, to that. And how I've seen this come up too is uh, someone will have a neck mass and they biopsy that lymph node, and it comes back aberrant thyroid tissue. And if that's the case, that is diagnostic of uh, metastatic thyroid cancer to, the, that, to that lymph node.
1: Correct. They'll try and trick you where it's just yeah, aberrant thyroid tissue, no big deal. No, no need to do anything wrong. Yeah, that is that is thyroid cancer. Um, okay, adjuvant therapy for, for papillary thyroid cancer.
2: So adjuvant radioactive iodine should be given when the TSH is elevated, so generally about four to six weeks post-op. Uh, and so you can either withhold exogenous thyroid hormone or be given as recombinant TSH post-op. And the TSH should then be suppressed by giving levothyroxine,
1: right? So yeah, the the key there is either because you know the levothyroxine is has such a long half life that if you it's hard to turn off, um, and so you want that TSH level to be high when you're given the recon or when you're given in the um, radioactive iodine. So either withhold it or you give a shorter acting recombinant TSH that you can that you can t- um, turn off. Okay, so moving on a little bit. Uh, next topic would be follicular thyroid cancer. Uh, so we already mentioned earlier that if you get follicular cells on your, um, on your FNA, uh, you cannot distinguish an adenoma versus carcinoma. You need tissue. So you need to do a lobectomy for, di- for diagnosis. Um, but Kevin, what can you tell us a little bit more about how follicular cancer uh, behaves compared to papillary thyroid cancer?
3: So for f- follicular cell cancer, it is spread hematogenously. Um, so really, there's very rare lymph node involvement with follicular cell cancers. Hurthle uh, cell is, when you think that, you want to think about follicular, a more aggressive form of follicular thyroid cancer. And so generally, we treat this similar uh, as we would treat follicular cell cancer. Um, So the treatment for a patient that does have follicular cell cancer is a total thyroidectomy. So after you've done that lobectomy for diagnosis, you need to take them back and complete the thyroidectomy. And then you also want to do a modified radical neck dissection on that side along with uh, radioactive iodine ablation. And I'm sorry, the modified radical neck would only be if there were positive lymph nodes, which is pretty rare in follicular cell cancer. So it's total thyroidectomy with radioactive iodine.
1: Okay. And lastly, Wu, uh, let's talk about uh, medullary thyroid cancer. Um, so, it's a little bit a little bit different than the other thyroid
2: cancers. Uh, where does it come from? What does it do? Yeah. So, remember when we had talked about those parafollicular C-cells, uh, that's where medullary thyroid cancer comes from. Okay. So, let's test short-term memory. Where do the parafollicular C-cells originate? Fourth pharyngeal pouch.
1: Yep. And uh, of what cell origin?
2: Neuroendocrine. Neural crest, neural crest, neural, crest. neural, neural crest, crest origin. Yeah, okay. Sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. Uh, so these parafollicular C cells and and therefore the medullary thyroid cancer produces calcitonin. Uh, so you can actually see that calcitonin levels can be greater than four hundred, uh, and this actually corresponds to a higher likelihood of metastasis. Uh, also, bear in mind that for medullary thyroid cancer, radioactive iodine is ineffective. Fifty um, percent of medullary thyroid cancer secretes CEA and. of medullary thyroid cancer occurs secondary to germline mutations in the RET proto-oncogene. This is important for uh, the MEN syndrome, so MEN2A and 2B, as well as familial um, medullary thyroid cancer. The remainder, though, are sporadic. So again, 20% secondary to germline mutations, 80% sporadic.
1: Yeah. So this is one of those favorite things where somebody comes up with medullary thyroid cancer and they ask you what else you have to think about. And you have to think about those familial syndromes, uh, most commonly the MEN syndromes. And we won't get into the weeds of that right now because we'll cover it when we talk more about, um, uh, I believe we cover that in our adrenal episode. So uh, we'll have more details about the MENs, but be aware of that association with the medullary thyroid cancer and the MENs. And doing things like ruling out pheochromocytomas before proceeding with your resection of your medullary cancer. Very important. How about uh, treatment? How do you treat uh, medullary thyroid cancer,
2: Wu? So treatment for medullary thyroid cancer, if no nodes are involved, is a total thyroidectomy with a central uh, node dissection. If you do have positive lateral nodes, then it's going to be a total thyroidectomy with a central and lateral dissection. So central being level six, lateral being levels two through five. Yep. That's
1: an important distinction. So all medullary thyroid cancers get a total thyroidectomy and a central node dissection, even if there's no uh, positive node. So they all get central node dissections. If they do have positive nodes, you add a lateral neck dissections, level two through six to that. Uh,
2: how about post-op? How do we follow these patients? So again, looking back to the uh, pathophysiology of of these medullary thyroid cancers, you're going to surveil with calcitonin and CEA levels, and you're going to measure these every six months for one year, uh, and then annually after that.
1: All right, great. So, I think that was a good review of some uh, of the different thyroid tumors, thyroid cancers. So, now let's move on to our quick hits section. Again, these are real quick associations, highly testable, not a lot of uh, extrapolation on any of these. So, uh, Kevin, I'm going to say an anatomic variation associated with a non-recurrent right laryngeal nerve. What do you think of
3: so, this is where you're going to have the aberrant right subclavian artery, uh, which you can also call, it's also called arteria lusoria. Yep, arteria lusoria. So, aberrant right subclavian. So, this is on the
1: right side. So, on the right side, that recurrent laryngeal nerve hooks under the right subclavian. So, if you have an aberrant, let's say you have a left takeoff of your right subclavian, you're going to have a non-recurrent right laryngeal nerve. Um, And we talked a little bit about this, but what is a very key principle, Wu, um, in avoiding avoiding injury to the superior laryngeal nerve during a thyroidectomy? You ligate superior pole vessels close to the thyroid. Yep. You want to stick right on that thyroid to avoid injuring that nerve. Um, Kevin, serum marker monitored for thyroid cancer recurrence.
3: That would be thyroglobulin.
1: Thyroglobulin. And it's another one of those benefits of doing a total thyroidectomy for papillary cancer.
3: And Wu, if it's medullary?
1: Calcitonin levels. And TEA. Yep, perfect. Okay, so there's two different forms of thyroid hormones. There's T3 and T4. What's the most active? T3. And where is T3 uh, produced, most of it? It's produced peripherally uh, with diadenase. <laughs> <laughs> Nailed it. <laughs> uh, Kevin, uh, A midline mass that moves uh, up and down with the patient swallowing. What do you think of?
3: Uh, This is the thyroglossal duct cyst, a remnant of the foramen cecum. Uh, So you do the cyst trunk procedure for this. You resect the cyst along with the mid-portion of the hyoid bone. Uh, These are generally prone to infection and have a risk of malignant degeneration.
1: Yep. There's a small small but real risk of malignant degeneration. So the treatment for these is, is resection. Uh, woo, fever, tachycardia, um, hypertension, post-op in a patient with uh, Graves disease. You've got to think thyroid storm. Yeah. What What probably didn't happen? Uh, the pre-operative preparation with beta blockade.
2: Yep. And, and, and PTU Lugol solution. Yep, yeah. And, and how do you treat thyroid storm? So, in the same sense, you're going to use uh, beta blockade, PTU Lugol solution. You're going to use cooling blankets for the fevers and oxygen. Correct. Okay. Uh. Okay. So
1: this is a, an interesting question. So, you know, you have a patient with maybe uh, you know medullary thyroid cancer or one of the MEN syndromes and they have uh, elevated calcitonin. What's the most common symptom of, 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 uh, having a high level of calcitonin in your blood? A diarrhea. Yeah. It's, it's weird, but I don't, I've seen that someplace. Um, but, uh, apparently important to know not what you would expect. Um, Okay. So this is interesting. So again, we talked a little bit about the MEN syndromes. We're going to get more into it in uh, our adrenal uh, uh, podcast review. Um, but uh, these patients, if they have a known MEN syndrome, they get prophylactic uh, thyroidectomies um, at a very young age, but it's different between 2A and 2B. Uh, so Wu, for a patient with uh, MEN 2A, at what age should they get a prophylactic thyroidectomy?
2: At six years old. Okay, how about MEN2B? And this is much earlier, before the age of two. Right. And
1: the way I remember that is, 2B has a worse prognosis. So B is bad. So stage 2B or MEN2B is bad. They get an early uh, prophylactic thyroidectomy, and they have a worse prognosis than uh, MEN2A. All right. Well, that wraps it up for our thyroid uh, behind the knife absite site review. Hope you guys enjoyed it, and we'll see you uh, at the next one. Thanks for listening, and thank you to Medtronic for supporting
0: surgical residents preparing for the 2023 site. Since 1949, Medtronic has relentlessly pursued therapies that change lives. Today, we thank Medtronic for supporting surgical residents as they relentlessly pursued their dreams. From all of us at Behind the Knife and Medtronic,
1: Dominate the app site.